0: It's Friday night. You've worked hard all week, and you really feel like blowing off some steam. You dress your best, call a few friends, and head out to the bar. Will you be coming home alone tonight? You sure hope not. It's been a long week. A long month, actually. Maybe this time you'll actually meet someone.
1: So exciting, for me. I
0: the rest of the night is a blur of cocktails and flirtation. You think you had a good time. But now you have no idea where you are. It's dark. The mattress is bare and the room is swimming in front of your eyes. You're on a bed, so it's probably a bedroom. The warm, dimly lit room smells rank. Why on earth would you stick around in a place like that? Oh, that's right, the drinks. What had been in those extra drinks? A warm liquid trickles down your temple. You think it's sweat, but when you wipe it away, it's sticky and red. Are you bleeding? It is then that you realize you are not alone. You can feel someone else in the room. You reach up to touch your temple, and then...
1: See what the insides of these eyes look like. Everybody.
0: You have no idea where you are. It's dark. The mattress is bare, and the room is swimming in front of your eyes. You're on a bed, so it's probably a bedroom. The warm, dimly lit room smells rank. Why on earth would you stick around in a place like that? Oh, that's right, the drinks. What had been in those extra drinks? Your eyes pulse in and out of focus, but you notice the mattress is red and sticky now. Are you bleeding? It is then that you realize you are not alone. You can feel someone else is in the room. You try to sit up, but realize you can no longer move. And then... slit them... You have no idea where you are. It's dark, the mattress is bare, and the room is swimming in front of your eyes. You're on a bed, so it's probably a bedroom. The warm, dimly lit room smells rank. Why on earth would you stick around in a place like that? Oh, that's right, the drinks. What had been in those extra drinks? You hear the hum of a drill and think, who on earth is doing construction at this hour? The sound is coming from everywhere and nowhere all at once, and it is then you quickly remember the man you went home with. You know you are in danger, but you can no longer form words. Your eyes start to sting. Is that blood?
1: Keep them with me so as possible.
0: You have no idea where you are. It is dark. The mattress is bare, and... and... I'm Holly, I'm Leslie, and
1: we would be dead.
0: To read it, it's scary. Oh, my, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Spooky week. Hey Leslie.
1: Hey Holly. Hey <laughs> Beans.
0: <laughs> Welcome to week two of Jeffrey Dahmer, aka the wall to wall murder edition. Wow. Yeah. Last week's opening was kind of ethereal and romantic. So I went real hard with this one. He sure did. <laughs> we don't really have any business today. No, we don't. And you know why that is? <laughs> why is
1: that? Because we're we need people to go and write reviews, yes, you said it this
0: week. <laughs> I did that's right, because we need you guys to please, please help revive our sad, sad selves. We go did it. go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star rating and or a friendly review. please, 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 please. Mm-hmm. We will be eternally grateful. maybe my voice won't be as husky next week.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I like your
0: husky tones. <laughs> well it's appropriate for this one, yeah, we laughed a lot yesterday, so we did, yeah. you know. It happens. We have some cool stuff coming for you guys. Uh, Also, we're recording this one like way earlier in the week than we usually do. Mm -hmm. So if you become our patron and we miss you, we will get you next week. Yes. Yeah, we have hope. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have nothing but hope. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Let's get into it right away. Okay. Okay. When we last left Jeff, it was 1981, and he had been honorably just discharged from the military, flew to Miami, worked in a deli, slept on a beach, and burned through all of his money drinking like a maniac. Jeff then called Daddy, who put him on a plane, back to Ohio where he and his new wife Sherry were living. Living with his father and stepmother had turned out to not be as easy for Jeff as he thought it would. Sherry insisted on giving him lots of chores and housework to occupy his time while he looked for work poor
1: guy i know that's such a parent thing to do though like when the kids are older and they have to come home to yeah live. they're like earn your keep they're like um you're just not doing enough Get mm-hmm.
0: yeah, you better paint the garage or whatever but he was a fully grown adult with no income and an insane drinking habit so like he can also paint the garage
1: i mean would you want him to though they don't know yet yeah.
0: mm. right oh <laughs> right oh right it's their son they'll put <laughs> that crazy fucker in the garage. Um, he's not an ideal roommate, so, you know. Jeff continued to drink heavily, and two weeks after he returned home, he was arrested for drunken disorderly conduct. Jeff was fined $60 and given a suspended 10-day jail sentence. It was then that Jeff's father tried unsuccessfully to wean him off alcohol. Nice try, Lionel. In December of 1981, when I was born— Nice. I'm so old. Jeff's father and stepmother decided they could no longer handle the situation that Jeff had become and sent him to live with his grandmother in West— Oh, I didn't look up a pronunciation for this. West Alice or Alice? A-L-L-I-S. Okay. That place. Wisconsin. I'm sorry if you lived there and I messed it up. I want to say Alice. I feel like that sounds familiar. Alice? West Alice? Okay, not West Alice. Oh, I don't know. Should we look it up real fast? Or just keep keep going keep through going it. Keep going with it. Okay. <laughs> Jeff's grandmother seemed to be the only member of the family he actually liked, and they had hoped that her influence plus the change of scenery might set Jeff straight. Well, not not straight. <laughs> but in this case, <laughs> they wanted Jeff to just stop drinking and get a job. The whole fact that he was gay was still kind of a secret. So off he went over the river and through the woods. Cool. At first, things at Grandma's house were good. Jeff readily helped her with the housework. He was totally fine with that. And at his grandmother's suggestion, he began looking for a job. His grandmother took Jeff to church and got him on a regular schedule. So he was, like, sleeping and eating meals and being, like, a member of society. He was living in a makeshift apartment in, like, the ground, the bottom floor of his grandmother's house, which I think is, like, kind of a basement, but kind of – there was, like, a door to the outside that went right to where he slept, you know, which is useful when you're killing people all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a makeshift apartment that would give him some space and uh, privacy because, of course, (laughs) privacy for that guy. Um, This would prove to all be quite useful for him in the future. Jeff got a job as a phlebotomist, which is a person who performs blood tests. Yes. Yeah. Great. His army medical training made him a technically perfect candidate for the job, and it pays a nice living wage. Hmm. Jeff was able to keep this job for 10 months before getting laid off. You see, shortly before losing his job, Jeff was arrested for indecent exposure. On August seventh, 1982, at Wisconsin State Fair Park, he was observed um, exposing himself to a crowd of 25 women and children.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: he was at a park, and he was like, this is my dick. Wow. (laughs) Crazy. For this incident, he was convicted and fined $50. Big deal. Plus court costs, which lead me to wonder exactly how much of that standard issue laying off was actually a laying off and how much of it was just like a swift and painless weirdoectomy for the lab. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, Woo, time, I can't, gotta cut back on oh, you.
1: You know, uh, flashers was something, that was one of my um, things in my childhood that I thought was going to happen a lot more than it did. Because they oh, <laughs> yep. Right, because
0: they always talk yeah. about it. And Someone's gonna show them your dick in the park. They, yeah, I
1: never saw a dick in a park. No, never once. We did have a, a warning at my school that there was a a, a loose dick warning flasher. Yeah, <laughs> a loose flasher. <laughs> a loose flasher, and we were terrified. Of I mean, I was probably were. in second grade, and I was just like, I'm just a little kid, and everyone wants to show me their dick. <laughs> That you are led to believe
0: that that's what the world is. Yes. Also, they tell you everyone's going to give you free drugs.
1: Yes, that. And, um, and, the, and so I was terrified of any man in a trench coat.
0: You know what's under there? Dicks and drugs. Uh, yeah. Dicks and drugs. <laughs> that's it.
1: They got, they got candies for children. hmm and, and it's the their dicks. dick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though. Well, yeah. Oh, well. Maybe some of you guys have flasher stories you can tell us. Maybe Leslie and I just lived perfect privileged lives. Let us know because I know that it's happened. Yeah, it's enough. I mean, it almost happened to me. Yeah, that's right. There was a loose dick. Yeah. (laughs) For two years after the phlebotomy business, Jeff would remain unemployed, living in his grandmother's basement, drinking, brooding, and living off the money his grandmother gave him. Sounds like a fun time. But all good things must come to an end. In January of 1985, Jeff was hired as a mixer at the Milwaukee Ambrosia Chocolate Factory, where he worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., six nights per week, with Saturday evenings off. So, yes, there was chocolate out there in the world that Jeffrey Dahmer made. Lots of people ate it, and they don't love that fact now.
1: (laughs) Aw, I wonder if if he had one of those, like, I love Lucy moments. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Except for it was with, like... Skulls. Yes. He was just eating heads. <laughs> They're coming too fast at not. me. <laughs> somebody draw that. Yes. Somebody
1: somebody art that up for us. Yes. <laughs> and keep Ethel in the picture.
0: Poor Ethel. Poor oh, Ethel. no. So while he hadn't been really doing anything productive, Jeff hadn't been doing anything particularly evil during his unemployment vacation in Grandma's basement either, this is part of what makes Jeff a true serial killer and not a spree killer, as I would argue our old buddy Richard Trenton Chase was. You see, serial killers have to take a break here and there and then get back to their killing. It can't just be a one-time thing where they lose their mind and murder everybody real quick. They also tend to escalate. So if Jeff's first murder seemed bad to you, strap in. It's going to get a lot worse. After a couple boring no action years, Jeff had started to get antsy, and in 1985, this would prove to be a turning point in his life, but not a good one. Still, a turning point, though. Leslie, do you want to tell us a little about swing in 1985? Okay. Is it all about chocolate factories? <laughs> I have the top
1: five chocolate factories in the country. Great. <laughs> Godiva. No. <laughs> and done. <scene>. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I put the top five songs for 1985. Okay. Careless Whisper by oh, George Michael. Yes. Like a Virgin, Madonna. Wake me up before you go-go, mm-hmm. wham. I wanna know what love is. Ah. Uh,
0: I want you to show me.
1: Rock of Ages. Yeah. <laughs> and I Feel for You by Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Yes. Um, Fashion. I did some male fashion in the 1980s. Okay. How would they be
0: looking cool at the bar when they're listening to all those cool songs you just mentioned? Dad jeans were in full force. Nice. Okay. T shirts and loose shirts were very popular.
1: Okay. Some bold color choices also. A nice. lot of denim. <laughs> <laughs> full denim tuxedos. Yes. Perfect. Bomber jackets, leather jackets, windbreakers, and sweaters were also the top t- trends. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just back. Yeah. Uh, And don't even think about excluding a white sneak from your wardrobe. Sure won't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because you mentioned this beforehand too. Like, Jeff was trendy. He wore those clothes. (laughs) That's exactly who I picture. Now, forever, that's who you picture. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. (laughs) See, that gives you a pretty accurate picture because he was going out. He was on the scene talking to guys, looking cute. So picture that going on. Shortly... After Jeff scored his job at the chocolate factory, an incident occurred. Jeff was sitting at the West, Alice Alice, whatever, public library, reading when a stranger threw a note at him. Just, like, chucked a note. The note stated that the stranger wanted to perform fellatio on him. Which is a lovely and delicate way of saying that this guy just offered Jeff a free-ass blowjob. Yes. Nice. Jeff didn't respond, but this did stir up old feelings inside him. The violent fantasy started up again, and Jeff began to familiarize himself with the bathhouses and gay bars of Milwaukee. He also stole a mannequin from a clothing store and used it to simulate sex acts with. Until his grandmother found it in a closet and threw it out. Which means she touched it. Gross. I know. Which is so gross. It's like the grossest thought, and I have to pretend that I never even had it. Mm. Can you imagine she just was like, ew, this is gross. Yeah. (laughs) What's on this? What's this doing in here? By late 1985, Jeff had begun to frequent the bathhouses, a place which he later described as being relaxing places. Nice. Mm -hmm. A quick word on bathhouses, in case you're not familiar with a bathhouse. And as much as I am academically, I'm not personally. They're a place with jacuzzis, steam rooms, locker rooms, and sometimes a pool or two that are really just intended to be a place where mostly gay men can meet one another and engage in consensual sex. Traditionally, they are places where um, gay men were free to be themselves. Gay, bi, pan, whatever. If you like other dudes, that's where you Mm -hmm. are. Where They they could be themselves in a social climate that would not let them do so. They provided uh, relief from society and companionship. Did seedy shit happen there all of the time? Yes, of course it did. Anywhere with a lot of sex in every corner is going to host some scary stuff occasionally. But that's not what they were really intended for. In fact, some bathhouses even helped LGTBQ plus folks register to vote. Oh, nice. Right? That's cool. But Jeff did not want to vote or meet a nice man. He wanted to have creepy corner sex. Mm-hmm. So there was something there for him. During his encounters, Jeff became frustrated all with all the moving around his partners were doing. It's so like, you're moving too much. What he really wanted was to be in complete control of a totally incapacitated person. He has been quoted as saying, quote, I trade myself to view people as objects of pleasure instead of people, end quote. For this reason, beginning in June of 1986, Jeff began giving his partners liquor laced with sedatives in the form of crushed up sleeping pills and then raping them while they lay completely unconscious. But word of his proclivities began to get around and after approximately 12 instances of drugging and having non-consensual sex had occurred, the Bathhouse's administration revoked Jeff's membership after just 12 times. They said, you can't do that anymore. And it's wild that he wouldn't go to prison for that. Well, they wouldn't tell on each other. Yeah. They didn't, like, nobody wanted anyone to know know what they were doing there. So they kind of, I feel like they didn't have any choice. Jeff's. Membership got revoked, and he began to use hotel rooms to continue on in this pursuit. Shortly after the bathhouses kicked him out and before he moved on to hotels, Jeff read a report in a newspaper regarding the upcoming funeral of an 18-year-old male. He conceived the idea of stealing the freshly interred corpse and taking it home. According to Jeff, he went so far as to try and dig up the coffin, but found the soil was too hard and left. It's not easy to be digging people up. No, it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Even for someone that works out. I know. All that working out, you can't, you still can't be digging up a body. It's difficult. In August of 1986, Jeff was arrested yet again for masturbating in front of two 12-year-old boys as he stood on the bank of the kin ooh, I didn't look this up either. I, I was in a rush today. Kinnick, Kinnick? K-I-N-N-I-C-K-I-N-N-I-C. You lost me at K. (laughs) Kinnick? Kinnick. Kinnickinnick? Yes. Kinnickinnick River? Tell me, guys. Tell me. I want somebody to pronounce this for me. I need, like, an audio of you doing it, but I tried. Initially, Jeff admitted the offense and was, again, charged with indecent exposure, which I'm sure would not have gone over real well with his grandma, so he quickly changed his story and claims he had merely been urinating and was completely unaware that those young boys were standing around looking actively traumatized while he took the longest and most active pee anyone had ever seen. Oh, God. Yeah. But it sort of worked because the charge was changed to disorderly conduct. And on March 10th, 1987, Jeff was sentenced to one year of probation with additional instructions that he was to undergo counseling. So if you whip your dick out in front of little boys, you absolutely need counseling. But Jeff had a record for doing that already. So here we have yet another instance of a white male slipping right through the cracks. We'll give him another chance. And a veteran. Yeah. He looks like he could do good things because he looks like a white man. hmm Oh, God. Far less than a year later, so less than his probation, on November 20th, 1987, Jeff, who was still living with his grandma, encountered a 25-year-old man from Michigan. His name was Stephen Toomey. Yeesh, bad luck for Stevens in this case. The two met at a Milwaukee gay bar, and Jeff pursued, persuaded, good job persuaded Stephen to return with him to the Ambassador Hotel, which was also in Milwaukee, where Jeff had rented a room for the evening. According to Jeff, he had every intention to just pull out the old knock him out and rape him" con he had perfected, but instead, the pair of them had another drink, and then Jeff claims himself to have blacked out. When he woke up the next morning, there was something drastically wrong. Stephen was lying beneath him on the bed. His chest was, quote, Crushed in and black and blue with bruises. Blood was also seeping from the corner of his mouth. Jeff's fists and forearm were extensively bruised, and he stated that he had absolutely no memory of having killed Stephen. Jeff would go on to later tell investigators that he, quote, could not believe that this had happened. And though it may have been the road less traveled here, I believe him. Jeff confesses, to all of his murders with every single detail. Why would he think to lie about just one? Mm. It just doesn't add up. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back in this situation. It's what sets him on his murder spree. Right. So I totally believe in a blackout he, he did that. Because just he, he stands to gain absolutely nothing. Because he's admitting he kills him. He's like, yeah, I killed him. I just don't remember that one. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, afterwards, he still says he doesn't remember. Yeah, he right? says he doesn't remember how, like, what really happened. I mean, there, we go on to talk a little bit more about this and, like, the aftermath okay. of the killings. But, like, he he does say, like, I don't – I can't specifically tell you what I was doing here because right. I, I did black out in this instance. So maybe, so he drugged him,
1: but maybe he drugged himself
0: I was too. thinking the same thing. Like,
1: maybe by accident. Maybe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he just says he blacked out and he woke up and the guy was dead and he knew he had killed him and he admits to having killed him. He just says he, he can't give details. He's like,
1: yeah, I probably did. I thought about it. I so. for
0: sure <laughs> killed him. It was just me and him there and somebody beat him to death and my arms were all bruised. So, like, I fucking killed him. But, like, I can't tell you the blow by blow. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. To dispose of Stephen's body, Jeff purchased a large suitcase in which he transported the body once again over the river and through the woods to his grandmother's house. He brought the body to the basement and left it for an entire week. I feel like Jeff has some kind of compromised sense of smell. Yeah. Because he seems to never mind the smell of decay, which is a smell a lot of people describe as like the worst thing ever and something you like can't come back from. Didn't you say that?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, smelling a dead body is like, that. Yeah, you can't come back. That's awful. No, you, you will always smell
1: it. Yep.
0: After the week was up, Jeff severed the head, arms, and legs from the torso and then deboned the entire body like a chicken. This is a rough task if ever there was one, even if you're an experienced surgeon. Then Jeff took the remaining flesh and cut it into small pieces. Jeff placed the flesh inside plastic garbage bags, wrapped the bones inside a sheet, and pounded them into splinters with a sledgehammer. The entire dismemberment process took Jeff approximately two hours to complete, which is actually pretty damn fast for such a tedious and labor-intensive task, right? Yeah. I feel like that would take me, like, a whole day. Yeah, it would be so tedious. Mm -hmm. Jeff then disposed of all of the remains in the trash except for the head, which he kept intact. Why did he keep it intact, Holly? Well, I'll tell you, Leslie. For a total of two weeks after Stephen's murder, Jeff kept his head wrapped in a blanket. Again, could he not smell? I feel like he couldn't. After two weeks, Jeff boiled the head in a mixture of Soylex, an alkali-based industrial detergent and bleach, in an effort to keep the skull and make it nice and white. Maybe for display purposes? No, not for display purposes. He liked to look at it while he masturbated. Eventually, the skull was rendered too brittle by this bleaching process, and he began, and it began to break down and flake away. So Jeff pulverized it and disposed of it. See, I have said a million times that bleaching bones is bad. Get it together, Jeff. Jesus Christ. I know. If you guys learn one thing from me, it will be how to properly preserve your bones. <laughs> oh boy. I swear to God, I'm not a murderer. After Stephen's murder, Jeff developed a taste for it, and there was no turning back now. Jeff began to actively seek out victims, not just to knock out and rape. No, now he wanted murder. Most of these men Jeff encountered in and around gay bars, mostly in Milwaukee, and typically he would get them to come back home with him, home still being his grandmother's house. He had also gotten more comfortable committing his crimes at home. After all, he was able to have a dead body down there for quite some time without anyone knowing and was able to dispose of it in secret. So, like, it was go time. Once Jeff and his victim would arrive, Jeff would drug them before or shortly after engaging in sexual activity with them. Once the victim was completely unconscious from the sleeping pill cocktail Jeff had mixed up, he would strangle them to death. It, of course, never ended there. Now, the next part is going to have to go fast because there is so much ground to cover. I really wish I could give each victim the time and introduction they deserve. But remember, there are 17 of them, and we simply don't have that much time. So, here we go. Two months after Stephen Toomey's murder, Jeff encountered a 14-year-old Native American male prostitute named James Doxtator. D-O-X-T-A-T-O-R is how you spell that last name. Jeff lured James to his home, still Grandma's basement, by offering him $50 to pose for nude pictures. This is like his thing. He does it all the time. Mm -hmm. Once they got back to Grandma's house, the pair engaged in sexual activity, which was stated to be as consensual as it can be for a 14-year-old prostitute and a grown-ass man.
1: Right.
0: I don't think it can be consensual at all, just for the record, but it wasn't forced violently, and that's the only point that is trying to be made here. Mm-hmm. After that, Jeff drugged James and strangled him on the floor of the cellar. Now, I'm led to believe this is not exactly the apartment portion of, like, the ground floor basementy area. The cellar is exactly what you think of when you conjure up that word. Like, empty, storagey, gross walls, support beams, stained concrete floors. That's where we're at now. Jeff left the body in the cellar for one week before dismembering it in much the same manner as he had with Stephen. He placed all of James's remains, excluding the skull, of course, we always keep that, in the trash. He boiled the skull and initially kept it before pulverizing it. Stop boiling and bleaching things! People (sighs) never learn. No. They never learn. Ugh. On March 24th, 1988, Jeff met a 22-year-old man named Richard Guerrero outside a gay bar called—sorry, there's a mosquito—called The Phoenix. Man, he doesn't even have to go inside. He just, like, lurks outside around and dudes are drawn to him. Yeah. Jeff lured Richard to his grandmother's house, although the incentive on this occasion was $50 to simply spend the remainder of the night with him. So come to think of it, these men are probably just prostitutes that solicit outside of gay bars. They might – I mean, a lot of them are probably homeless or –
1: No, they're not – I mean, some of them are, I'm sure. Like, I'm probably that 14-year-old
0: probably is trying to get any money
1: and living – You know, he's probably excited to
0: just go to a house for a night. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. I mean, yeah, a 14-year-old prostitute is not living, like, an easy life by Mm -hmm. any means. It's hard because I've, I've been watching
1: Pose on Netflix. Yes. And so that's the 80s. And oh, it's the okay. whole gay scene in the eighties, and so it's okay. I'm like, I'm just picturing that right now. So Wait, that's like <laughs> that's very, where I've gone. <laughs> that's a, that's a good
0: reference, though. Mm-hmm. That's the same era. Yeah. It's the same sort of community. Mm-hmm. Through no virtue of Jeff's that they agree to go home with him. He's giving them money. When they get back to his apartment, he drugs Richard with sleeping pills and strangles him to death with a leather strap. This time, Jeff then performs sex on the court, um, oral sex on the corpse, which just. How? I Yeah, I always think that that's weird when they I just, male anatomy works a certain way and if you are a person who services it you understand that if it's not gonna do what it does, you can't do that. Right. Does it
1: rigor does it... has not
0: set in. He's not. Okay. That's... I just
1: didn't know if blood rushed there anyway and caused. No, I don't think so. Okay. No, it would just be like flaccid. Okay. I guess if that's god i was gonna say something and i'm i chose not to <laughs>
0: <laughs> never mind we, we don't need to get into that richard's body was dismembered within 24 hours of his murder this time so he didn't wait a week he just did it right away with the remains again being disposed of in the trash and the skull again being kept and then pulverized several months later so now we have a habit everyone has a thing just don't let that be your thing sometimes we can kink shame i think this is that time. Okay. What, you don't think so? You think?
1: (laughs) No, I think we can, but I think I'm (laughs) – I i do not know what to say. I was going to say, is
0: that your thing? No. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is one time where we can be like, yeah, don't kill people and then give them dead guy blowjobs. So, no, they're bad. On April 23rd, Jeff lured another young man to his house. However, um, this time he gave him drugged coffee. Both Jeff and the victim heard Jeff's mother call out, is that you, Jeff? It was indeed Jeff. But also, some very sleepy rando he was about to murder, and that's not really a scene for grandma to walk in on. Although Jeff did reply in a manner that led his grandmother to believe that he was alone, but she observed that he was not. Because of this, Jeff opted not to kill this particular victim. Instead, he waited until he became unconscious and then took him to the county general hospital and dropped him off. I don't even have this guy's name. So he lived through it and probably was like, don't talk about me. Right, wow. So that's now two... Of, like, Jeff's intended victims that got away because there's a jogger in the first one. Mm -hmm. In September of 1988, Jeff's grandmother asked him to move out because of his habit of bringing young men to her house late at night and the foul smells emanating from both the basement and the garage. She never asked about the smells, just didn't like them. I wondered. uh, Why wouldn't you be like, it smells like dead? What is going on?
1: Smells, Jeff.
0: Yeah, (laughs) what the fuck, Jeff? (laughs) That's not just trash. (sighs) Oh, God. Okay, Grandma. Napping the ladies over for tea and... And it smells like a dead guy. (laughs) I can't. Well, Jeff found a one-bedroom apartment on North 25th Street and moved into his new residence on September 25th. The following day, he was arrested for drugging and sexually fondling a 13-year-old boy whom he had lured to his home on the pretext of posing for nude photographs every freaking time. Why is everyone in this story super cool with nudes for a little cash? I guess also 14 is like the minimum age for murder because this kid was 13 and he did not kill him. Um, in January of 1989, Jeff was convicted of second-degree sexual assault and of enticing a child for immoral purposes. What an old-timey way of putting being like a pedo dumpster fire. Ugh. Sentencing for the assault was suspended until May of 1989, and on March 20th, Jeff commenced a 10-day Easter absence from work, during which he moved back into his grandmother's house. Poor grandma, like, probably just fumigated. Yeah. Ew. I can't imagine she was, like, thrilled with this arrangement. Two months after his conviction and two months prior to his sentencing for the sexual assault, Jeff murdered his fifth victim. He was a 24-year-old aspiring model named Anthony Sears, whom Jeff met at a gay bar on March 25, 1989. According to Jeff, on this particular occasion, he was not looking to commit a crime. However, shortly before closing time that evening, Anthony, quote, just started talking to me. Jeff invited Anthony back to his grandmother's house, where the pair engaged in oral sex, before Jeff drugged and strangled him. Probably worked out better that time. The following morning, Jeff placed the corpse in his grandmother's bathtub. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where he decapitated the body before attempting to flay the corpse, which is a fancy and Game of Thronesy way of saying he tried to skin him. Hmm. Which is no easy task. He then stripped the flesh from the body and pulverized the bones, which were again disposed of in the trash as per his usual habit. According to Jeff, he found Anthony, quote, exceptionally attractive, and Anthony was the first victim from whom he permanently retained any body parts. He preserved Anthony's head and genitalia in acetone and stored them in his work locker at the Chocolate Factory. (gasps) I can't. This gives Willy Wonka a whole new meaning. (laughs) No. Yes. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. He had like a head and a dick in a jar in his locker at the chocolate factory. Oh, my God. I know. Woo! When he moved to a new address in the following year, Jeff thankfully took the remains with him. Can you imagine if he just left him and someone was like, oh, that's your locker now, new guy. And they were like, what? Ah! Wow. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. There's no earthly way of knowing. <laughs> <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> The worst boat
1: ride ever. (laughs) Yes, that is that is the worst boat ride ever. It is.
0: On May 23rd, 1989, Jeff was sentenced to five years probation and one year in the House of Correction with work release permitted in order that he be able to keep his job at the chocolate factory. (laughs) He was also required to register as a sex offender. This was um, for the incident with a 13-year-old. Remember, I said that they had delayed his sentencing. This is when he finally did it. Two months before his scheduled release from the work camp, Jeff was paroled. His five years probation was imposed in 1989 and began at that point. In an interesting sorry turn of events, Jeff's father, Lionel, did not think he should be released at this point. He sent him to several psychiatrists and Bible study groups who tried to help him pray the gay away because, remember, this is him molesting a little boy. So now they know. There are notes on Jeff's parole documents, like where his father had requested Jeff please be kept incarcerated and believed him to be dangerous and not ready for the real world. Hmm. Now, his reasons for saying this may have been because he was a homophobic Bible beater, but in this case, he was also right. right. He should never have been let out. I mean, but
1: the things that he did were still... Even if his father was being homophobic, there's still dangerous things that he absolutely
0: did he Well, at that point, well, this is only for molesting that little boy, right? Which, which I awful. would no, no, no. Have I, I know was dangerous. You know, but when his father talks about it, predominantly he just talks about him being gay. Oh, okay. That's when they found okay. out he was gay. And if you, if anybody watched the um, interviews I shared in the show notes. It'll be the one, the Larry King interview with Lionel and Sherry where they, like, he's like, Larry King's like, oh, so you found out he was gay. How did you take that? And the first thing out of Sherry's mouth is not well. So (laughs) they did not like that at all. But, like, whatever the motives were, like, they were correct. He should have been kept in jail. Right. So on release, Jeff temporarily moved back to... Grandmas! That's right! <laughs> Before in May of 1990, moving into the Oxford apartments located on North 25th Street in Milwaukee. Although located in a high-crime area, the apartment was close to his workplace, furnished, and at $300 per month, inclusive of all bills excluding electricity, was economical. Nice. Yeah. 300 dollars a month? That would be great. That would be. Now, before we break into the next stretch of killings, let's briefly take a break and talk about Jeff's other interest. Horror movies! Woo. After Jeff got into an apartment of his own, he was free to kind of like watch and listen to whatever he wanted to. And he frequently chose horror movies, openly admitting to be a, being a big fan of the genre. Leslie, what horror movies would Jeff have been checking out in the 80s? We'll get to his absolute favorite in a couple minutes.
1: Cool, cool, cool. The 80s was a phenomenal time for horror films the shining came out in 1980 so good cannibal holocaust came out in 1980 oh god that movie is uh, we could do a whole episode just
0: on that movie
1: oh you know that one i've oh, actually I never sure seen do. that cannibal this is the only one on here like
0: they kill actual things in that movie <gasps> wow mm-hmm. okay.
1: you watch animals get killed that's so funny cuz i put it on here literally just for him
0: like oh cuz <laughs> yeah um, no this that oh. No, that movie is like a like a situation. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, we let's do it. Nineteen
1: eighty one was The Evil Dead. Love it, Ash.
0: Mm. I know we love some Evil Dead.
1: Nineteen eighty two was The Thing.
0: Oh, Will and I went to see that when they showed it at the Stone Harbor Theater last year. It oh, was nice. so fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh,
1: then we have Gremlins in nineteen eighty four, which people will argue is a Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, 1985, Day of the Dead.
0: Oh, good. That's a good one, too. 1987 was Hellraiser. Oh. I can't watch that because Pinhead scared me too much when I was a kid.
1: Um, funny story. So, I also felt the same way, and I had a hard time. My brother worked at Blockbuster. But <gasps> I was we going to, to ask you if it was the Blockbuster cutout that scared you. Yeah. Me, too. Yeah, and, and so, and then that... The movie, I had such a hard time going down that row and that was always Me the one I too. didn't want to see. And I thought it was gonna be the scariest movie ever. John has now wa- he's I've already seen it. them, but John has watched them and has watched all of the Hellraisers. Right, like it's an entire like cult film. Yeah. Like there's so many people. They're like love sex this. demons or something. It's so funny. It's not I was like, Oh, this isn't a scary movie. No. It's not. It's no. not yeah, yeah. It's it's more in it. I mean they've lasted this long and they have this huge background to their story. It's like it actually it's kind of interesting.
0: Maybe we'll watch it and Leslie and I will like live record our reactions. Yeah. <laughs> we'll live tweet the whole thing yeah. for you guys. Then maybe we'll actually be on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And and that guy,
1: what what's his name? Pinhead. Pinhead. I don't yeah. Know. He yeah, right from the pins. Yeah, the guy with all the, the pins, pins in his face that I hated. Yes. Um he within a very short period of time is no longer like terrifying to stare at.
0: He's like, a dog-level nipple situation, Yeah, once too. he, like— he's like, six
1: nipples, and they all have rings in them. It's no good. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really funny. It terrified
0: me. The same thing. And they had a bust of him, like, a mask or, like, a statue thing at Spencer Gifts, and oh. I would walk in there and be like, oh, <laughs> I couldn't handle that either. Ooh. Pinhead. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: Uh, we also have Nightmare on Elm Street. That was in 1984. Fuck Freddy Krueger, too. He scared yeah. me so hard. Yep. He still creeps me out. Yeah, same. 1980 was uh, Friday the 13th. Good one. Mm-hmm. And then 1986 was one of my favorites, which is Alien.
0: Oh, I that's car- all These all, because I was a, like an impressionable child at the time, mm-hmm. they all terrified me.
1: Yeah. I liked, um, I didn't watch Alien until probably this last
0: decade though, but I, I like. I don't think I've still seen all of that movie, to be honest with you, because it terrified me when I was little yeah. and I like have like, I, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Like there are a few that I just couldn't pull the trigger and watch because when I was little, I was so scared. Yeah. Though I did, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I stayed for a week in one of the camps that was Camp Crystal Lake on Friday the 13th oh, when I was in sixth grade. Oh, no. It did. hmm. In Stoke State Forest. Terrible. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I mean, they told us that when we got there. We were all 12 and they were like, this movie, this was in Friday the 13th. We were all like, what? Why are we here? <laughs> it's like a beautiful, like, conservation yeah, of thing. Of course it is. But they're always beautiful. Yeah, it was very scary. So. Yeah. Well, well those were so. the scary movies back oh, then. They brought a lot of, that was nostalgic yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. I have nightmares about Freddie and Pinhead tonight. <laughs> Lordy. Cool. So now those movies were all like really great options. That's like mm-hmm. you could just put them on your list for Halloween viewing and it would be great. Except for Cannibal Holocaust. Don't, don't go into that one uninformed. No. You will be scarred. And I'm sure Jeff saw most of them, but his absolute favorite was The Exorcist 3. It was not all that famous or popular or critically acclaimed to what I know of it. It was mm-hmm. just like <laughs> the third. Jeff had just connected with the film and would often leave it playing in his living room while he like murdered people. <laughs> That was like what he turned on when people came to the apartment, yeah. which is so bizarre. Um, which was probably super relaxing, right? Like, hey, guy, it's so relaxing. Let's just, yeah. Oh, can you <laughs> can you give us a little rundown on The Exorcist Part Three, Leslie?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, I will say I've I've never watched this one. Me neither. So I spent most of the day trying to understand the movie. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Um, so it came out in nineteen ninety. It is um is 60% on rotten tomatoes. Oh, to say now, yeah. 60%. Yeah, okay. it's pretty good I think for rotten tomatoes. I
0: don't think it is.
1: For rotten <laughs> I think tomatoes it's like garbage. <laughs> Um, So, police lieutenant Kinderman notices similarities between his current murder investigation and the methods used by the Gemini killer, who was executed 15 years before. So,
0: this is supposed to be kind of like Zodiac, it sounds like. Yes, he
1: is based off of the Zodiac. Okay. Mm -hmm. He soon discovers a hospitalized mental patient, played by Jason Miller. Claiming to who be who is that? Well, <laughs> I, I say this because so he's like the main guy in okay. there, and this is who Jeff will he like looks at. A lot.
0: I have to look at him now.
1: The lieutenant discovers a hospitalized mental patient, played by Jason Miller, Ooh, claiming unsettling. claiming to be the dead serial killer, but who looks uncannily like a priest. Kinderman knew who died during an exorcism.
0: Why wouldn't he?
1: As more bodies are found. Kinderman looks for connections between the two supposedly dead men. Oh, and then so the interesting part about it so that's like the plot of the story. The interesting part is like there the Gemini killer, I guess, is now like an entity that enters this guy played by Jason Miller. So I think he's like his name some like, kind
0: of free roaming ghost spirit that can possess people. Yeah, okay. but then
1: who is also the Gemini killer is also being pushed to do his killings by the master. So there's, like, two oh. possessions happening or okay. something. I don't know. So it's that's where it gets kind of confusing. That's why so this, this is 60 Yeah, Yeah, this one man is kind of being possessed by two beings. Okay. That's a tough um, time for that guy. Yeah. And he goes in and out of his possession throughout the movie. And, and that's uh, who Jeff,
0: like, identifies with? He
1: identifies with that man. Okay. And I think he identifies with him during his possession moments when he is – Acting out certain killings.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, we go on to talk about Mm -hmm. how he, like, chants at one point.
1: Yes. But there's another movie that he likes a lot, too. What's that, Leslie? Return of the Jedi. Oh, no. (laughs) He loves himself Emperor Palpatine. Oh, isn't he, like,
0: supremely
1: evil? So evil. So evil. And he loves just, like... Mobilizing his people, right. you know, don't like come having at me. Control. I know Star
0: Wars things. Yeah. I'm just not like on a level where I know every detail in all the languages or something. Yeah, he can just like control his victims, kind of. And right, he, and uh,
1: I, I don't, I didn't watch The Exorcist three, so I'm not sure if the Gemini Killer did similar things. I'm not sure, but it was uh, pure, just like controlling.
0: Maybe we need to watch this movie too. Maybe in like in October, we need to just like live. <laughs> tweet these movies okay. that we talk about. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I think that'd be really fun. Yeah. We're just going to drink wine and, and talk about these nutty movies. If you yes. guys have suggestions for movies you'd like to hear us, <laughs> like, listen to what we have to say about while watching, please
1: let us know. And then this is something else. So the fun connection between these two okay. characters mm-hmm. is that they both have these yellow tinted eyes.
0: Ew, really? Yeah. They both do? Are they jaundiced?
1: <laughs> I don't know okay. um, But they're very yellow And Jeff gets tinted lenses To put in his eyes And he and wears them Ew,
0: in the late 80s, early 90s That wasn't like you couldn't go to the mall And buy tinted contact lenses You had to like find that shit
1: Yeah, so I don't know how he got them But he wore them And it is said that he would go out And uh, and like pray, on the, pray for his guys You know, go for them ew. Attack. However you say it <laughs> Pray. I don't think he prayed pray. for them. He didn't.
0: I was like, he didn't he pray like, for them. He was like, okay, let's sit down and pray. And then I'm going to eat your soul. Okay. He prayed on them. He, that's, <laughs> that is true. That is very true. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a little bit about The Exorcist 3. Intermission over. I needed a break before I could talk about the, like, next round of murders because it's pretty graphic. <sighs> On February of 1991, Jeff observed a 17 year old named Curtis Strotter standing at a bus stop near Marquette University. According to Jeff, he lured Curtis into his apartment with an offer of, again, money for posing for nude pictures, as was his way, with the added incentive of sexual intercourse. So he to- said to this guy, like, and we'll also have some sex. Wink. Nice. Yeah. Of course, Jeff drugged and strangled him with a leather strap, then dismembered him. This time retaining the skull, hands, and genitals and photographing each stage of the dismemberment process. Which I have seen these pictures. They are
1: oh my. awful.
0: I will not be posting them in our photo suite because they are too much for some people. But if you want to look around online and see some really, really graphic stuff, Google away. You can find them. So I guess he did actually take the whole nude photos thing seriously this time. Yeah. Less than two months later, on April 7th, Jeff encountered a 19-year-old named Errol Lindsay, which is a very fancy name. I like that name. That's a good one, Errol. He was walking to get a key cut. I had to get a copy of a key. Errol was straight and resisted Jeff's advances, but somehow Jeff still got him to come back to his apartment. Once there, Jeff had some different plans this time. He drugged Errol as per usual, but then drilled a hole in his skull and poured hydrochloric acid into it. Why? Oh, we'll get there. According to Jeff, Errol awoke after this experiment saying, quote, I have a headache. What time is it? In response to this, Jeff again drugged Errol, then strangled him. He decapitated the body and retained his skull, of course, keep the skull, Then he flayed Errol's body, placing the skin in a solution of cold water and salt for several weeks in the hope of permanently keeping it, Buffalo Bill style. Oh, dear Mm -hmm. Lord. Yes, ma'am, he had himself a skin suit. Reluctantly, he disposed of the skin when he noted it had become too frayed and brittle. Why did he do all of this, you are hopefully wondering? Jeff had a new dream now, and that dream was to make a living sex zombie. Logically, right? That's the next leap you take. A man who could not speak or think for himself and would not move during sex but would remain technically alive and shuffle around completely under Jeff's control. Jeff thought he could do this by disabling his frontal lobe with chemicals, which... Fucking with your frontal lobe does not make you a zombie, but it will make you very impulsive and angry as we have spoken about what may have happened to Jeff's frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of the opposite of what he was looking to do, but that's not really the point. By 1991, fellow residents of the Oxford Apartments had repeatedly complained to the building's manager, Sopa Prince Will, of the foul smells emanating from apartment 213. That's Jeff's apartment, obviously. What if it was somebody else's? I was like, apartment 213. The guy down the hall, he <laughs> smells. That's <laughs> <laughs> a super bad BO. That's the worst. In addition to the sounds of falling objects and the occasional sound of a chainsaw, so basically, they heard a symphony of murder, and it smelled
1: Oh God, yeah, but
0: that was just like, oh, you know we should call like the manager, not the cops Right, Prince will did. Contact Jeff in response to these complaints on several occasions, although he initially excused the odors emanating from his apartment as being caused by his freezer breaking, causing the contents to become spoiled, which I mentioned before. And on later occasions, he informed Prince Will that the reason for the resurgence of the odor was that several of his tropical fish had recently died and he would take care of the matter. So, like I said some of this before, but it bears repeating now. The next episode is perhaps Jeff's most famous and the most frustrating and unfortunate of them all. On the afternoon of May 26, 1991, Jeff encountered a 14 year old boy named Conorak Synthosmophone on Wisconsin Avenue. By an unbelievable coincidence, Conorak was the younger brother of the boy whom Jeff had molested in 1998. Whoa. I know, that's nuts, right? It's bananas. Jeff approached the boy with an offer of, what do we think? Nude photos? Money for nude photos, of course. And so he wanted him to come to his apartment to pose for Polaroid pictures. According to Jeff, Conorak was initially reluctant to do this, but changed his mind and went with him back to his apartment, where he did pose for two pictures in his underwear before Jeff drugged him into unconsciousness and performed oral sex on him. Really loves a the oral sex experience with something awful. Ew. I know, I hate it, but it's so weird to me. I'm like, why? What is that doing? Like, I don't understand. This time, Jeff drilled a single hole into Conorak's skull, through which he injected hydrochloric acid into the frontal lobe. But before Conorak fell unconscious, Jeff led the boy into his bedroom, where the body of 31-year-old Tony Hughes, whom he had killed three days earlier, lay naked on the floor. Jeff was never really big on cleaning up. I guess not. Mm -mm. According to Jeff, he, quote, believed that Conorak saw this body, yet did not react to seeing the bloated corpse, likely because the effects of the sleeping pills he had ingested and the hydrochloric acid Dahmer had injected through his skull. Conorak soon became unconscious, whereupon Jeff drank several beers while lying alongside him before leaving his apartment to drink at a bar and then purchase more alcohol. So, yeah, he just, like, left him alone and went on his way. He's like, my sex zombie will be here when I get home. And he's like dead at this time, right? Oh, no. he's No, he is not dead. Okay, But I think he thinks he did it. I think he thinks he like made his sex zombie. Okay. He thinks he's like an extremely intelligent scientist who just drills into people's heads and is like, cool, cool, cool. Like if you remember the episode of American Horror Story Hotel where they have like the serial killer banquet, they're like, give that kid to Jeff. And he's like drilling holes in the kid's head. That's what this is. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to see a little bit of it, it's in that one. That's like the best episode that show has ever had. Fight me. Anyway. <laughs> in the early morning hours of May 27th, Jeff returned to his apartment to discover Conorak sitting outside naked on the corner of 25th and State, talking in Lao, with three distressed young women standing near him. Jeff approached the trio and explained to the women that Conorak, whom he referred to by the alias John Mung, was his friend. And he attempted to lead him to his apartment by the arm. So he's like, oh, sorry, ladies, this is just my buddy. And he grabbed his arm and was, like, trying to pull him inside. The three women were not having this, though. They were like, Ugh, no, 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 no. We have already called 911. Yes. So good for them. Upon the arrival of two Milwaukee police officers, John Zach, and Joseph Gabrish. Jeff's demeanor relaxed. He told the officers that Conorak was his 19-year-old boyfriend and he had drunk too much after they had a fight and that he frequently behaved like this when he was drunk. Oh, he's always like this. The three women were exasperated, and then when one of the three of them attempted to indicate to one of the officers that Conorak was bleeding from his backside and that he had seemingly struggled against Jeff's attempts to walk him into his apartment, the officer harshly informed her to butt out and shut the hell up. Uh Uh-huh. And not to interfere, adding the incident was, quote, domestic. No. Mm-hmm. Huh? Huh? Against the protests of the three women, the officer simply covered Conorak with a towel, because remember, he's naked, and walked him into Jeff's apartment, where, in an effort to verify his claim that he and Conorak were lovers, Jeff showed the officer two semi-nude Polaroid pictures he had taken of him the night before. Because child pornography is a great and legal reason to keep custody of a dazed boy.
1: And he's, like, 14, right? Yes, not 19. he's told me.
0: Jeff said he was 19. He does not look no. 19. That is a huge difference. Huge. You will never believe. That's like saying, like, oh, that kid's not 6. They're 12. Like, you can't. That's too big of a stretch. Yeah, he, like, doesn't have muscles yet. No, he looks like a little boy. Yeah. He was like, that's my 19-year-old boyfriend. But you know what those cops saw? They were like, these, these are gay boys, and I don't want any part of them. And they just walked away. Oh, no, he was just a Yes, he was. God, well, that's what I said here too. 19 my ass. The kid does not look 19. So it's funny I have that written too. The officers later reported having noted a strange scent reminiscent of excrement inside the apartment. This was the odor emanating from the decomposing body of Tony Hughes, which they were paces away from. They were in his apartment. Good. Yep. Jeff stated that to investigate this, um, one officer simply peeked his head around the bedroom but didn't take a good look. He had his head in the room. No. He was in the room. Oh, oh my God. The officers then left with a departing remark that Jeff, quote, better take care of his boyfriend. <gasps> oh, I hate that uh-huh. statement. Yep, yep, yep. The officers remarked on their way out that they would need a delousing shower when they got back to the station, you know, to get rid of the gay cooties and horrible karma they had let wash all over him while ignoring Jeff's murder pit. Ew. Mm -hmm. They were like, ooh, we better wash the gay off us when we get back. (sighs) They're, They're fucking horrible. So
1: how do we know that, stuff like that, how do we know that they said things like that?
0: Like, Other cops, they were at
1: like the station. I think when they let,
0: when they said that it's in a it's in an okay. article I read, like a news article about the two cops that they okay. said that they needed that because they were very like casual about it. They talked about this encounter. They're like, oh, two fucking gay That's guys. True. I mean, like,
1: I guess at that time they they would have said
0: something. like They that. absolutely did. Had officers Balzerack and Gabrish conducted a background check on Jeff, even just radioed over for a background check, it would have revealed that he was a convicted child molester under probation.
1: Yeah, I do. I do feel like, I mean, today, I feel like the background check would have at least happened.
0: Absolutely. But why, would, why didn't they do the, the background check immediately on I mean, anybody else they probably would have? Well, again, because he was a gross gay. Yeah. Yeah, and these, oh, God. Jeff, uh, upon the departure of the two officers from his apartment, Jeff again injected hydrochloric acid into Conorak's brain. On the second occasion, the injection proved fatal. The following day, May 28th, Jeff took a day's leave from work to devote himself to the dismemberment of the bodies of Conorak and Tony Hughes. He kept both the skulls, obviously. Officers Balzerzak and Gabrish insisted that they acted appropriately. To this day, they think they say in interviews that they did exactly what they were supposed to do and they never could have known anything else was going on. So fuck them right in the ear. Seriously. Yeah. There is nothing you can do to defend your fucking actions. You saw a man who clearly took a little boy, you said they were gay, and then you walked away because you didn't want to deal with that. Fuck you. (laughs) Like In the stench in that house. Yes, there was a body that was three days old, unrefrigerated, just laying on the ground. That's like, that's a gross body. It would have had to have been hard to walk into the house. And they said they smelled it. They're like, it smells like shit. And then they just kept going on along with their life
1: hate
0: it yeah oh i hate it so much so yeah fuck those guys in the ear yet again okay lightning round on june 30th jeff traveled to chicago where he encountered a 20 year old named matt turner at a bus station matt accepted jeff's offer to travel to milwaukee for a professional photo shoot he upgraded himself okay Nope, not Polaroids this time. At the apartment, Jeff drugged, strangled, and dismembered Matt, as per usual, and placed his head and internal organs in separate plastic bags in the freezer. Matt was not reported missing. It's right. kind of tragic. Five days later, on July 5th, Jeff lured 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger from a Chicago bar into his, to his apartment on the promise of spending the weekend with him. He drugged Jeremiah and twice injected boiling water through his skull, sending him into a coma from which he died two days later. He just put a lot of different stuff in people's brains, seeing which one would work.
1: Oh my God. hmm So you said that he wasn't—the rep- other one wasn't reported missing? Yeah. But were these other— People prior, yeah, the same. it's
0: I, I mean, like they don't really go into the search for these kids, but yeah, they were. I mean, like they okay. they just didn't find him because he was very good at disposing of bodies.
1: I know, but even I mean, those three women saw that one kid. I would have assumed
0: at some point. I, I don't know that that. I don't know what happened with that okay. kid. I mean, like you want to assume, but also, where is he finding these guys? Who are they? How well, much that's do they what care I was wondering. Them? I didn't
1: know if um, like if that kid, since he had that brother that was flashed by him. You, you would know.
0: want to think I, I th- that they made this connection, but Mm-mm. yeah.
1: I just did not know maybe well maybe they just didn't have a family.
0: I think that they were also um not they were poor and they yeah. were like an immigrant family and they just didn't want to okay. deal with them.
1: Okay. Okay, maybe. Yeah. I know a lot of the times like some of those kids like if they, especially the, the one that was like a prostitute, yeah. he was probably kicked out of his house probably. for being gay yeah. at the time. So there, he's probably finding a lot of people like that, which you don't now,
0: I don't know that a lot of them were reported, but this guy, I think it's noteworthy because he's like a the guy he picked up inside mm-hmm. a bar. like okay. it's like someone like the guy who was a model too. they were like, well, that guy, like, yeah, who wasn't just soliciting people outside a bar. He was in a bar like right, not you know, he, he probably was slightly more well-off and had a little bit more of a back backing, not background support system. that's that, those are the words I'm looking for. He had people. Okay. Probably. But I don't know. There's just this case. The breadth of this case is enormous. So, mm-hmm. like, there's only so much we can really cover. Um, I mean, I could have done four episodes on Dahmer, but, like, you know, let's let's get him. Let's get him done. <laughs> okay. So, Jeremiah, did I say that he died? Yeah, he died two days later. Mm-hmm. On July 15th, Jeff encountered 24-year-old Oliver Lacey at the corner of 27th and Kilbourne. So again this is someone he like solicited on a street corner so probably a similar situation. Oliver agreed to Jeff's ruse of posing for nude photographs and accompanied him to his apartment where they engaged in sex sexual activity before Jeff drugged Oliver. On this occasion though Jeff wanted to prolong the time he spent with Oliver while he was still alive for one reason or the next. After unsuccessfully attempting to render him unconscious with chloroform, he phoned his workplace to request a day's absence which was granted, although the next day Jeff was suspended. He's asking for a lot of days off so he can chop people up. Yeah, you need them. I know. You just need your time off to really dismember corpses. After strangling Oliver, Jeff had sex with the corpse before dismembering him. He placed Oliver's head and heart in the refrigerator and his skeleton in the freezer. Four days later, on July 19th, Jeff received word that he was fired. <laughs> When he heard this news, Jeff just went back out and lured 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoff to his apartment. Joseph was strangled and left lying on Jeff's bed covered with a sheet for two days. Gets real gross. Real gross warning. Push the 15 seconds if you don't want to hear this part. Push. (laughs) Yeah. On July 21st, Jeff removed the sheets to find the head covered in maggots, whereupon he decapitated the body, cleaned the head, and placed it in the refrigerator. He later acidified Braidhoff's torso along with two other victims that he killed within the previous month. And yes, maggots are my least favorite thing in the world. I hate them more than anything. One time they were in my trash can and I threw up. The end. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Which brings us to the day of Jeff's capture. July 22nd, 1991. And he went out with a bang. On July 22nd, 1991, as I mentioned, Jeff approached three men with an offer of $100. He upped the ante this time to accompany him to his apartment to pose nude for photographs, drink beer, and just keep him company. So, like, let's hang out and have a great naked photo night, and I'll give you 100 bucks. Nice. Great, right? Only one of the three men, 32-year-old Tracy Edwards, who we met in the first episode, agreed to accompany Jeff to his apartment. Upon entering Jeff's apartment, Tracy noted a foul odor, which always stank to high heaven, and several boxes of hydrochloric acid on the floor, which. Jeff claimed that he used for cleaning bricks. Logical. Yeah, a lot of bricks about in apartment life. You just got to clean them with acid. And probably there was probably just so many strewn about. Yeah. There was no exposed brick in his apartment either. If you're thinking that, there isn't. After some minor conversation, Tracy responded to Jeff's request to turn his head and look at his tropical fish. He was like, look over there. There's fish whereupon Jeff placed a handcuff on his wrist. Because remember, Tracy Edwards runs Mm -hmm. out of the um, apartment building with handcuffs on him. So Tracy asked, what is happening? Which, like, yeah, what is happening? Jeff unsuccessfully attempted to handcuff his wrists together. Like, he couldn't get them both. He could only get one. And then he told Tracy, he was like, oh, can't can't get it together, so come with me into my bedroom to pose nude for some pictures. (gasps) Because after that, like, you still trust him. No. Tracy noted nude male posters on the wall. Like I said, there are a lot of posters of like Mm -hmm. naked dudes. And a videotape of The Exorcist 3 was playing. (laughs) As we mentioned, this is a very casual romantic atmosphere to go into. Exorcist 3, handcuffs, menacing, smells like garbage. He also noted a blue 57-gallon drum in the corner of Jeff's bedroom from which a strong odor emanated. You know, just a normal thing to have in your bedroom. Yep. How could you possibly think anyone would ignore that? It just baffles me that he was like, I could keep this in my room. That's fine. And at this time, because when they find it, it's the same day. There were three torsos in it. Oh, damn. Yeah, so it smelled a lot. That was terrible. He's just getting lazy at this point. Yeah, he's like, I'll just do it at once. all at once. We're good. Jeff then pulled out a knife and informed Tracy that he intended to take nude pictures of him. In an attempt to appease Jeff, Tracy just started unbuttoning his shirt and saying, that's fine. You can do that. Um, Just take off the handcuffs and put the knife away and we can take some naked pictures. It's fine. Um, So this guy's smart. In response to this um, promise, Jeff just started watching TV. Normal guy. He's like, hey, put the knife away and we'll take pictures. He's like, no, The Exorcist 3 is on. And then, then he starts rocking back and forth and chanting mm-hmm. before – turning his attention back to Tracy. So this was him, like, doing an impression of the killer in that movie. Yeah, Jeff was really feeling himself that night and decided to get very dramatic. Um, he placed his head on Tracy's chest, listened to his heartbeat with the knife pressed against him, and then informed Tracy that he intended to eat his heart. Oh. Menacing! I can't. That's too much. I, ca- I can't imagine any situation scarier than that. <laughs> Like, no. That's top tier. I tell John I want to eat him all the time. But do you put your head on his chest and go, "I want to eat your heart." Sometimes. Oh, you're <laughs> Okay, then that is that why you were upset when I was kink shaming him before. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just love him so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to eat him. <laughs> but not really. But not really. Cool. God, In continuous attempts to keep Jeff from attacking him, Tracy repeated. He kept saying, like, I'm your friend. Uh, I'm not going to run away. We can do this, but you just, like, you can't hurt me. I will, like, we can fool around or take pictures, but, like, don't put away the knife and stuff. Um, Tracy had decided he was either going to jump out of the window or run through the unlocked front door at the next available opportunity. This guy had eyes everywhere. Like, he's amazing. When Tracy next stated that he needed to use the bathroom, he asked if they could just, like, sit in the living room and have a beer because there was air conditioning in there. Ew, so there wasn't even air conditioning in his bedroom, where which was full of bodies. Oh, God. God. Jeff said that was fine. He was like, okay, you can use um, we'll, – we'll go into the living room where it's air conditioned and have a beer. So they walked in there, and then I guess he, he let him go to the bathroom. Tracy came out of the bathroom and went into the living room. And waited until he saw that Jeff had, like, a momentary lapse in concentration. I guess he just, like, zoned out before asking to use the bathroom again. When Tracy rose from the couch, he noted that Jeff was not, was not holding the handcuffs. So I guess he was, like, holding on to him and he, like, mm-hmm. let go. And at that point, Tracy punched him in the face, knocking Dahmer off balance and ran out the front door. Fuck <snack> yes. I love Great. this guy. He is yeah. amazing. God, that is a fighter. Survivalist. Seriously. At 11.30 p.m. on July 22nd, Tracy flagged down two Milwaukee police officers, Robert Ralph and Ralph Mueller, at the corner of North 25th Street, and that brings us back to where we began. Great. We're done with the murders. Beginning in the early hours of July 23rd, 1991, Jeff was questioned by Detective Patrick Kennedy as the about the murders that he had committed and the evidence they had found in, in his apartment. So remember, at this time, they found everything in his apartment, which right. was, like, a crazy amount of stuff. Over the following two weeks, Kennedy and later Detective Patrick Murphy conducted lots of interviews with Jeff, which combined totaled over 60 hours. So I mentioned this in the first episode. Like, it's a t- it's like a stack of papers 250 pages thick, so it it was long. Jeff decided to waive his right to have an attorney present throughout his interrogation, adding he wished to confess everything because, quote, he had created this horror, and it only makes sense that I do everything to put an end to it. So once he got caught, he was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to go down for this. I don't want to try and get out of it. I did it. Hmm. He readily admitted to having murdered 16 young men in Wisconsin since 1987, with one further victim, Stephen Hicks, killed in Ohio back in 1978. So like I said, he confessed to all of them. So I don't think any of the things he said are lies. Most of Jeff's victims had been rendered unconscious prior to their murder, which we heard, although some of them had died as a result of having acid or boiling water injected into their brain, as he had no memory of the murder of Stephen Toomey. He was unaware whether he was unconscious when beaten to death or not, although he did concede it was possible that his viewing of the ex- of Stephen's exposed chest while in a drunken stupor may have caused him to. I don't know, unsuccessfully attempt to tear Stephen's heart out from his chest. Wild. Almost all the murders Jeff committed after moving into the Oxford apartments had involved a ritual of posing the victim's bodies in suggestive positions, typically with their chest thrust outwards prior to dismemberment. You can see these pictures too. So like imagine, okay, this this is audio, so I have to give you like paint a picture. So imagine you're like kneeling. Mm -hmm. And then you lay your body down backwards like you are also laying down so that your like chest and pelvis would be like in an arc. Okay. That's how these people were posed. So like their back would be meeting with their feet and they would be like kind of like in a rainbow shape almost. Again, find them if you want to find them. You probably won't sleep, but that's, that's what's going on. Jeff readily admitted to engaging in necrophilia with several of his victims' bodies, including performing sexual acts with their viscera, which means guts, as he dismembered their body in his bathtub. Having noted that much of the blood pooled inside his victims' chest after death, Jeff first removed their internal organs— then suspended the torso so the blood drained into his bathtub before dicing any organs he did not wish to retain and paring the flesh from the body. The bones he wanted to dispose of were then pulverized or acidified with soilex and bleach solutions used to um, aid in the preservation of skeletons and skulls if you wanted to keep them. In addition, Jeff confessed to having consumed the hearts, livers, biceps, and portions of the thighs of several victims killed within the previous year. When asked why he consumed parts of his victims, Jeff claimed that he wanted to take in their energy and keep a part of them with him forever. He was like, just thought he was going to like absorb them if he ate them. It was a very weird thing. So that's fun. There's also like a... Fun little extra anecdote that at one point he had so many bodies in his apartment that one of them was in the ba- in the tub to drain and he had nowhere to put it and he just showered with it for a few days. Not big on cleaning up, remember? Describing the increasing rate of his killings in the two months prior to his arrest, remember I said serial killers escalate, Jeff stated he had been, quote, completely swept along with his compulsion to kill, adding, quote, it was an incessant and never-ending desire to be with someone at whatever cost. Someone good-looking, really nice-looking. It just filled my thoughts all day long. When asked as to why he had preserved a total of seven skulls and the entire skeletons of two victims, Jeff stated that he was in the process of constructing a private altar of victims' skulls, which he had intended to display on the black table located in his living room, the one you can see the fish tank on in the picture that I I put up, upon which he had photographed the bodies of many of his victims. This display of skulls was to be adorned on each side with a complete skeleton. You know, he had two. The four severed heads found in his kitchen were supposed to have been removed of all their flesh and used in this altar, as was the skull of at least one future victim. Incense sticks were to be placed at each end of the black table, above which Jeff intended to place a large blue lamp with extending blue globe lights. The entire construction was to be placed before a window, covered with a black opaque shower curtain, in front of which Jeff intended to sit in a black leather chair. When asked in November 18th of 1991 in an interview who the altar was dedicated to, Jeff replied, Myself, it was a place where I could feel at home. He further described his intended altar as a, quote, place for meditation, from where he believed he could draw a sense of power, adding, quote, if this, meaning his arrest, had happened six months later, that's what they would have found. Now, I've seen this interview where he talks about how he wanted to just sit there and remember his victims in this shrine of bones, (sighs) so he could, like, really be with them and remember them. Jesus. Mm-hmm can not, picture it so well, Not too. try to be fucking skeletal or something. Like, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Also, there is a picture of the diagram of this altar that I will provide in the photo suite this week. It looks like a seven-year-old druid, <laughs> which is a delight. Well, he's drunk all the time. Indeed. He is drunk most of the time. He probably was like, what a beautiful draw. <laughs> I've done so well. Okay. <laughs> On July 25th, 1991, Jeff was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. By August 22nd, he had been charged with a further 11 murders committed in Wisconsin. On September 14th, investigators in Ohio, having uncovered hundreds of bone fragments in the woodland area behind the address in which Dahmer had confessed to killing his first victim, formally identified two molars and a vertebra with x-rays or X-Ray Records of pics, And I have this section of that, that book that I have that I will do, like, I'll read it for you guys in a video or something, um, just as a little extra, because I did not have time to transcribe all of it this week. <laughs> Jeff was not charged with the attempted murder of Tracy Edwards, which is kind of awful, nor with the murder of Stephen Toomey, he was not charged with Toomey's murder because the Milwaukee County um, District Attorney only brought charges where murder could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and Jeff had no memory of actually committing this particular murder, and there was no physical evidence of the crime because he's real good at getting rid of bodies. At a scheduled preliminary hearing on, July, on January 13th, sorry, 1992, Jeff pleaded guilty but insane on 15 counts of murder. Guilty but insane is the name of my new album. <laughs> <laughs> nice well, now we're going to talk a little bit about court and it's going to get kind of kind of legal easy Jeff's trial began on January 30th 1992 he was tried in Milwaukee for the 15 counts of first degree murder before Judge Lawrence Graham by pleading guilty on January 13th to the charges brought against him Jeff had waived his right to an initial trial to establish guilt because like your first thing is like are you guilty or not what's the deal but he didn't need that because he was like no 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 I'm very guilty The issue debated by opposing counsels at Jeff's trial, so they were really just there to determine whether he suffered from a mental or personality disorder. So is the insanity defense valid or is it not? That's why they're there, not not to argue about his guilt. The prosecution claimed that any disorders did not deprive Jeff of the ability to appreciate um, his conduct or deprive him of the ability to resist his impulses, the def- like So they said, like, what if there's anything wrong with him, he still knew he was doing something wrong. And as we have discussed before, the, really the only thing you need to do to destroy an insanity case is prove that they knew they were doing something wrong.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the defense was arguing that Jeff suffered from mental disease and was driven by obsessions and impulses that he was unable to control. Defense experts argued that Jeff was insane due to his necrophilic drive, which was his obvious compulsion to have sex with dead bodies. Not a normal thing. Shouldn't have that. Um, defense expert Dr. Fred Berlin testified that Jeff was unable to conform his conduct at the time that he committed the crimes because he was suffering from paraphilia, um, which is just like a sexual attraction to something that you wouldn't normally be sexually attracted to. I mean, it could be a fucking car. In this case, it's a dead body. More specifically, necrophilia, obviously. Dr. Judith Becker, a professor of psychiatry and psychology, was the second expert witness for the defense, and she also diagnosed Jeff with necrophilia. Nobody's arguing that, you guys. Like, let's just move on. Right. The final defense was to testify um, forensic psychiatrist Dr. Carl Wallstrom, who diagnosed Jeff with necrophilia. Yet again, okay, we're all on board borderline personality disorder, frequently a serial killer's best friend, schizotypal personality disorder, another one they love giving serial killers, alcohol dependence, not arguing that, and psychotic disorder. Okay. The prosecution rejected the defense's argument that Jeff was insane. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Philip Resnick testified that Jeff did not suffer from primary necrophilia because he preferred live sexual partners as evidenced by his efforts to create unresistant submissive sexual partners, devoid of of rational thought. So he wanted like living sex zombies so it couldn't be just the necrophilia driving him. This is the nitty gritty of it. Another prosecution expert to testify was Dr. Frederick Fosdell, and he testified that he thought that Jeff was without mental disease or defect at the time he committed the murders. He said that Jeff was as calculating and cunning an individual as he had ever seen, and he was able to differentiate between right and wrong with the ability to control his actions. Although Fosdell did state his belief that Jeff was not a that sorry that Jeff suffered from paraphilia, his conclusion was that Dahmer was not a sadist. One more. The final witness to appear before the prosecution, forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz, began his testimony on February 12th. Dietz testified that he did not believe Jeff to be suffering from any mental disease or defects at the time he committed the crime, stating, quote, Dahmer went to lengths to be alone with his victim and to have no witnesses. End quote. He explained that there was ample evidence that Jeff prepared in advance for each murder. Therefore, his crimes were not impulsive. And that's true. He solicited them to come to his house. He knew what he was going to do. He had all the stuff he needed. Although Dietz did not concede any acquisition of a paraphilia was not a matter of personal choice, he also stated his belief that Jeff's habit of becoming really drunk prior to committing each of the murders was significant, stating, quote, If he had a compulsion to kill, he would not have to drink alcohol. He had to drink alcohol to overcome his inhibition, to do the crime he would rather not do. Dietz also noted that Jeff strongly identified with the evil and corrupt characters from both The Exorcist 3 and Return of the Jedi. Right, Leslie? That's right. Did he say anything else? He did.
1: He did. In his testimony, Dietz explained to the court why he liked these movies. And he says, What these characters have in common is that they are evil and corrupt and powerful, and both have the ability to use special powers to control others. Oh. In the case of the Emperor, he seems to be zapping people with energy beams of some kind. Each of the characters in the scenes that he repeatedly viewed actually torments someone else in a way that might be described as torture. But, Mr. Dahmer said, that was not what was appealing to him, but that he did identify with the power of these characters.
0: Oh. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Dietz also diagnosed Jeff with substance abuse disorder paraphilia, and schizotypal personality disorder. Two court-appointed mental health professionals testifying independently of, each other, of either prosecution or defense, so they're just there from the court and they're not on either side um, because there was just so much back and forth, were forensic psychiatrist George Palermo and clinical psycholo- psychologist Samuel Friedman. Palermo stated that the murders were the result of a pent-up aggression within Jeff himself and that he killed those men because he wanted to kill the source of his homosexual attraction to them. In killing them, he killed what he hated in himself. Interesting. Hmm. Palermo concluded that Jeff was a sexual sadist with antisocial personality disorder, but legally sane. Friedman testified that it was a longing for companionship that caused Jeff to kill. He stated, quote, Mr. Dahmer is not psychotic, um he spoke kindly of Jeff describing him as amiable, pleasant to be with, courteous with a sense of humor, conventionally handsome and a charming manner. He was and still is a bright young man. Okay. He diagnosed Jeff with personality disorder not otherwise specified featuring borderline obsessive-compulsive and sadistic traits. So like there's a lot of different theories as to what's wrong with him, although a lot of them do connect. Mm-hmm. So what we can assume was true of him based on all of the doctors is that he was had a paraphilia for dead people that he probably i mean that he definitely was an alcoholic and that he probably had some sort of psychotic disorder right on february 15th the court reconvened to hear the verdict jeff was ruled to be sane and not suffering from a mental disorder at the time of each of the 15 murders for which he was tried and i don't disagree he seems very calculated and put together for someone who was doing it because they were crazy On the first two counts, Jeff was sentenced to life imprisonment plus 10 years, so like your whole life and also 10 more, (laughs) with the remaining 13 counts carrying a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment plus 70 years. The death penalty was not an option for Judge Graham to consider at the penalty phase, as Wisconsin had abolished capital punishment in 1853. Oh, wow. That's bananas. Usually it's much later than that. Three months after his conviction in Milwaukee, Jeff was extradited to Ohio to be tried for the murder of his first victim, Stephen Hicks, in a court hearing that lasted just 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, Jeff again pleaded guilty to the charges and was sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment on May 1st, 1992. But that's not all. During his time in prison, Jeff became a born-again Christian. Lots of them do that. They find God. He saw his father and stepmother regularly, always greeting them with a hug, gave numerous interviews publicly into, like, newscasters and stuff, and spoke to his mother once a week. His mother, Joyce, was concerned for Jeff's well-being in prison, as child rapists and murderers aren't usually super popular in there. But Jeff just said, quote, It doesn't matter, Mom. I don't care if something happens to me. Okay, Jeff. Cool. You've done your things. Then... On the morning of November 28, 1994, Jeff left his cell to conduct his um, assigned work detail. Accompanying him were two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. The trio were left unsupervised in the showers of the prison gym, which they were supposed to be cleaning, for approximately two minutes. At approximately 8:10 a.m., Jeff was discovered on the floor of the bathrooms of the gym suffering from extreme head and facial wounds. He had been severely bludgeoned about the head and face with a 20-inch metal bar. His head had also been repeatedly struck against the wall. Although Jeff was still alive and was rushed to a nearby hospital, he was pronounced dead one hour later. Jesse Anderson had also been beaten with the same instrument and died two days later from the wounds. Christopher Scarver, who was already serving a life sentence for murder, so did not care, committed that he, he committed the murder in 1990 informed authorities that he had first attacked jeff with the metal bar as he was cleaning a staff locker room before attacking jesse anderson as he cleaned an inmate locker room so two separate rooms according to christopher scarver jeff did not yell or make any noise as he was attacked he just took it god immediately after attacking both men christopher scarver who was thought to be schizophrenic was returned to his cell and informed a prison guard quote god told me to do it Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead. Christopher Scarver was adamant that he had not planned the attacks in advance, although he later divulged to investigators that he had concealed the 20-inch iron bar used to kill both men in his clothing shortly before the killings. Although Christopher Scarver had confessed in 1994 to having concealed the weapon used to kill the two um, in his clothing the morning before the murders, in 2015, so recent, he publicly stated that the murders of Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson had resulted from a confrontation in which one of the two men had poked him. Sounds right. And now he poked him in the back as the three had begun their assigned work detail. In this renewed account of events, Christopher Scarver claimed that the two had laughed at him and turned around in response before Jeff and Jesse Anderson each walked to separate rooms to begin their cleaning duty with Christopher Scarver following Jeff toward the staff locker room. Christopher Scarver alleges that immediately before murdering Jeff he had cornered him and presented a newspaper article detailing Jeff's crimes and demanded that Jeff answer whether the account was true. Scarver further alleged that he had been revolted by Jeff's crimes and that Jeff had been openly unrepentant. That Jeff taunted prison employees and fellow inmates by shaping his prison food into imitations of severed limbs with ketchup smeared on them to simulate blood spatter. And that prison staff, knowing of Christopher Scarver's hatred for Jeff, had deliberately put the men too unsupervised together so that they could kill him. Mm. Furthermore, Christopher Scriver stated that Jeff was so disliked by fellow inmates that he required a personal escort of at least one guard whenever he was out of his cell to prevent inmates from attacking him. So they also had a huge distaste for him because, like, why do you get special attention? You need a guard. You can only do certain things. Right. Jeff had stated in his will that he wished for no services to be conducted and that he wished to be cremated. In September of 1995, Jeff's body was cremated and his ashes were divided between his parents. I would not keep those ashes. Oh,
1: thank you. But they both
0: did. Oh, and that is the conclusion of Jeffrey Dahmer. I guess, did he sober up in prison? Yeah, but he was still the same guy. Even sober, he was still like an obnoxious dude that... Yeah. Kind of... Now, I read a very interesting article that I will share in the show notes. um, And it's going to be like a little bit controversial, but you're going to stay with me for a minute. That thinks... That not, not his, this didn't cause him to do what he did, but they think that one of his differences was that he was on the spectrum. They, they say Asperger's, but I don't know that we say that anymore. Um, it's an older article and it's a university article that doctors who like studied his case stated that a lot of things that, a lot of problems that he had socially seem to correspond with that. And a lot of the disconnects that he has could have corresponded with that kind of, mm-hmm. um, neurodivergence. So, which, which is interesting. I mean, like, again, there are millions of people on the spectrum that don't kill people. That doesn't make you kill people. But could it have added to certain social issues he had and that nobody helped him with? Sure, it could have. And then adding alcoholism mm-hmm. and other family drama. And other trauma. just stuff. and Yeah, adding. I think he was just a cocktail of things. And also some things that you just couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. I do personally agree that he was very aware of what he did. Yes. Like, I don't think insanity would have been a relevant defense for him. No. No, I, yeah, I agree with that. He just knew what he was doing too much. Like, insanity defenses, like, uh, with Richard, Trenton Chase, that should have applied. Because he just fucking snapped and wandered around and killed people and then walked around all covered in blood and didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Like, again, nothing excuses doing that, but, like. That's probably a crazy person. Like, Mm -hmm. there's. I just think that there is a difference, but and it's and it's very interesting to look at two people who did similarly awful things, but very differently.
1: Right. Yeah, that was that was uh, interesting for
0: sure. Hopefully, the court part wasn't too
1: boring. (laughs) No, that was all interesting to hear. A lot of
0: it. And that you mean, like, if you guys want to do independent research, you can look up all those disorders that I listed. We've talked about most of them before. Um and there are, a lot of them are self explanatory with like like I said p- borderline personality disorder I often call a serial killer's best friend because lots of them have it it's a very like it's an interesting disorder because I don't think it necess- it doesn't make you like psychotic but it makes you very self interested and very paranoid mm-hmm. so a lot of times like that can lead you to feeling like aggressive and frightened and 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 angry and and like it can lead to to stuff that yeah you know makes you murder somebody
1: and if you don't have a good support system. Behind right behind you i i mean i don't i don't know i i know i i know a handful of people that have borderline personality well, disorder. and the thing and, with people
0: with borderline is that like the, the incidence of suicide is way 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 higher than homicide yes. or anything like that like a mm-hmm. lot of them try to injure themselves yes. it's mostly that yeah yeah so guys that uh that was jeff <laughs> Thanks, <Holly. laughs> i know i was
1: also remembering so the like Taking photos, like mm-hmm. new photos, I remember that was also something we were taught about um, in my school. Like, oh, the people not would want to take pictures of you, yeah. Or and that was you would have been a little older because, and I was just getting to that age. Mm. But it was a like a TGI Friday show.
0: Yeah. Um
1: it was smart child. Do you ever remember that? They did this whole weird episode where it was like, okay, we have to it like sit down familiar. with your family and yeah. this one's really serious. And it was about like the kids going over to this person's house. I think it was like an internet mm-hmm. thing. And they like went over to this guy's house and he wanted to take pictures of the the children. And I was Yikes. like, oh my God. So again, that was also something that I thought like anytime I went on the internet, it was just – Old men trying to get me to take pictures with them: I
0: mean, it definitely is. Yes, that was definitely <laughs>
1: happening, but it was like terrifying.. Ugh.
0: OK. yeah, well I will, I will try to sign us off. And if we were approached by a handsome man in a bar who told us we were beautiful and made us feel special and then brought us home, we, we would, would be, be dead. dead.
1: Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod, And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.
0: The only motive that there ever was was to completely control a person, a person that I found physically attractive, and uh, keep them with me as long as possible, even
1: if it meant just keeping apart of them.